In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number 52, The Hamilton Reynolds Affair. Alexander Hamilton read the pamphlet, his eyes growing wide in disbelief. This was bad. Very bad. The accusations of financial impropriety didn't trouble him. Those could be refuted easily. He was innocent of any actual crimes. No, what really concerned Hamilton was a different accusation. That in his bucket of chastity, a drop more or less was not to be perceived. Hamilton supposed he had gotten off lucky. The pamphlet hadn't explicitly described his torrid affair with a married woman. Time was on his side, for the moment. But the longer the accusations went unanswered, the harder it would be to recover from them. Trying to deny them was a risky proposition. It wouldn't be hard for the journalist to produce the receipts, so to speak. As painful as it would be for him and his family, Hamilton knew there was only one thing he could do. Tell the truth. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. In 1791, 34-year-old Alexander Hamilton was at the peak of his power. As President Washington's Secretary of the Treasury, he was instrumental in shaping America's financial future. An avowed Federalist, Hamilton firmly believed in a strong central government, and his financial policies reflected those convictions. Under Hamilton's supervision, the federal government assumed states' debts, created a system for tax collection, and was instrumental in establishing lines of credit with foreign nations. He also proved to be as adept at political maneuvering as he was at finances. Hamilton frequently butted heads with James Madison, a former ally who had recently parted ways with him over the question of whether or not the U.S. needed a federal bank. Although it may not seem so controversial today, the creation of a centralized banking system was a hot-button issue in 1791. With memories of Britain's autocratic rules still fresh in the Founding Fathers' minds, many politicians were wary of giving the federal government any power over people's pocketbooks. This faction called itself Republican. Along with Thomas Jefferson, James Madison established the group, which favored individual and states' rights over a strong central government. They were determined to thwart Hamilton's attempt to centralize banking. 
But Hamilton and the Federalists came out on top. The measure passed in 1791. This success cemented Hamilton's status as one of the most influential politicians in America. It was all but certain that he was destined for a higher office. Maybe even president. He certainly had the resume for it. Self-made man? Check. Revolutionary war hero? Check. Key figure in shaping the Constitution? Check. Embarrassing sex scandal? Check. In the summer of 1791, Alexander Hamilton received an unexpected visitor at his Philadelphia home. It was 23-year-old Maria Reynolds. She wanted to speak to Hamilton alone. Hamilton wasn't sure that was a good idea. His wife was in Albany with their children, and Maria's husband was nowhere to be seen. If word got out that the two of them spoke in private, the rumor mill might start churning. But Maria couldn't speak to Hamilton with her husband present. In fact, that was the reason for her visit. He had abandoned her, and she needed Hamilton's help. Hamilton was never one to turn down a person in need. At least, not a beautiful blonde like Maria Reynolds. He agreed to hear her out. Maria told Hamilton that her husband, James Reynolds, had abandoned her and their daughter for another woman. He had left her penniless and alone. She just needed a little money to get back to her friends and family in New York. It's not exactly clear why Maria came to Hamilton for help, since they didn't seem to know each other before this. But they were both New Yorkers. They probably ran in the same social circles. And since Hamilton was the Secretary of the Treasury, who better to ask for some money? Her inclinations were correct. Hamilton agreed to lend her some cash, but only if he could bring it to her that night. Once the sun went down, Hamilton stuffed a $30 banknote into his pocket, worth about $800 today, and called on Maria at her rooming house. After he gave her the money, she led him to an upstairs bedroom. Hamilton would later write, It was quickly apparent that other than pecuniary consolation would be acceptable. In other words, they had sex. The affair continued throughout the summer and into the fall. With Hamilton's wife still in Albany, they frequently met at Hamilton's own house. Hamilton knew what he was doing was wrong, and yet... It felt so right. He later reflected on his reckless behavior, writing, Her conduct made it extremely difficult to disentangle myself. My sensibility, perhaps my vanity, admitted the possibility of a real fondness. But as fall turned into winter, their heated passion suddenly turned cold. Without warning, Maria became distant. And on December 15, 1791, Hamilton found out why. That day, he received an urgent note from Maria. Her husband knew. James Reynolds had returned home. He knew about Maria's affair with Hamilton, and he wasn't happy about it. That same day, Hamilton received a second letter, this time from James Reynolds himself. It was full of vitriol. But Reynolds was willing to overlook the pain and grief Hamilton had caused him for a price. And that price was $1,000. In 
In today's money, that amounts to over $25,000. Unlike many of the Founding Fathers, Hamilton wasn't particularly wealthy. It would be a significant amount of his income. But if James Reynolds revealed what he knew, it could mean more than the end of Hamilton's marriage. It could signal the end of his career. Today, the idea of a sex scandal is nothing new. Many politicians have endured the embarrassment of having their private lives scrutinized. JFK, Bill Clinton, Anthony Weiner. The list is long and sundry. But at the time, Alexander Hamilton was in uncharted waters. He had no idea how the public would react if his affair with Maria Reynolds was exposed. He decided it was better to be safe than sorry. He would pay James Reynolds the hush money. And once he received the money, Reynolds promised to skip town and leave Hamilton alone. This news was music to Hamilton's ears. His secret was safe. For the first few weeks of 1792, life was good. Hamilton stopped the affair and refocused his energies on running the Treasury Department. But James Reynolds wasn't true to his word. On January 17th, he sent another letter to Hamilton. However, it wasn't a demand for more money. It was tacit permission to resume the affair with Maria. In the letter, Reynolds wrote, It's Mrs. R's wish to see you, and for my own happiness and hers, I have not the least objection to your calling. Hamilton knew a scam when he saw one. If he went to see Maria, Reynolds would immediately shake him down for more money. He ignored the letter. But he couldn't ignore Maria. A few days later, she sent Hamilton a note begging him to come see her. Hamilton knew it was a trap, but like many politicians who have been tempted by romantic follies, Hamilton decided to prioritize his love life over sound judgment. The affair resumed. And so did James Reynolds' demands for payment. By this point, most historians agree that Maria was in on the scheme. Although it's hard to say whether she truly had feelings for Hamilton, it's clear that she was aware of her husband's extortion. The amounts he asked for always varied. $135 in April, then $350 in May. Reynolds only asked for $50 in June, but it rose again to $200 in August. We don't know why the amounts were so different, but by the end of the summer... Hamilton was fed up. He called off the affair. Robbed of this easy income source, James Reynolds turned to a new get-rich-quick scheme. And luckily for Hamilton, this one had nothing to do with him or Maria. At least, not at first. Along with a crony named Jacob Klingman, Reynolds posed as a representative for deceased Revolutionary War veterans. Claiming to be the executor of their wills, Reynolds would collect unpaid back wages that the veterans' families had never received. The scheme didn't last long. In November 1792, Reynolds was exposed and thrown in jail. But he had one last card to play. He sent word to Republican congressmen Frederick Muhlenberg, Abraham Venable, and James Monroe. 
If they got him out of his legal troubles, he would give them dirt on one of their biggest political rivals. Alexander Hamilton. Coming up, Hamilton's dirty laundry gets hung out to dry. Now back to the story. In November 1792, James Reynolds tried to use his dirt on Alexander Hamilton as a literal get-out-of-jail-free card. He figured that Hamilton's political enemies, Frederick Muhlenberg, Abraham Venable, and James Monroe, would be very interested in what he had to say. He was right. At the time, Hamilton was perhaps the second most influential man in America, behind only President George Washington. If Muhlenberg, Venable, and Monroe could get rid of him, they'd have much better luck implementing their vision for the nascent United States. But when the congressman visited Reynolds in prison, he didn't say anything about the affair between Hamilton and Maria. Instead, he told them Hamilton had been a silent partner in the scam to collect dead veterans' back pay, and his wife had the letters to prove it. Muhlenberg, Venable, and Monroe were shocked. If Reynolds was telling the truth, Hamilton would be in gross violation of his office as Treasury Secretary. Surely President Washington would remove him from his cabinet. When they visited Maria, she provided letters from Hamilton to her husband discussing mysterious under-the-table payments. There was nothing explicitly stating that Hamilton was part of the back pay scheme, but there was a lot of language about unspecified loans and oaths of friendship. In the congressman's experience, where there was smoke, there was sure to be fire. They decided to send President Washington a letter. But at the last moment, they reconsidered. Hamilton might be a political enemy, but he was also a colleague, and Muhlenberg, Venable, and Monroe were men of honor. They would give Hamilton a chance to address the allegations against him before they went directly to his boss. On the evening of December 15, 1792, the three congressmen visited Alexander Hamilton at home. When they confronted him with the letters James and Maria Reynolds had given them, Hamilton broke down and told them everything. It was true he had sent Reynolds money, but it wasn't for that harebrained get-rich-quick scheme. It was to make sure Reynolds kept quiet about Hamilton's affair with his wife. Like the Reynoldses, Hamilton had kept the letters he'd received regarding the payments. But the papers in Hamilton's possession told a very different story. Hamilton laid out the affair in explicit detail. In his mind, it was better for his opponents to think he was a sexual deviant than to believe he was abusing the power of his office. Although the sordid story made the three Republicans extremely uncomfortable, they were satisfied that Hamilton was innocent of any financial wrongdoing. In fact, the entire confrontation was quite amicable. Later on, Hamilton would write, One of the gentlemen expressed a hope that I also was satisfied with their conduct in conducting the inquiry. I answered that I was satisfied and considered myself as having been treated with candor or with fairness and liberality. But perhaps he shouldn't have been so trusting. 
Although Muhlenberg, Venable, and Monroe decided not to notify President Washington, Monroe did hold on to the letters Reynolds and Hamilton had given them. He asked the House of Representatives clerk, John Beckley, to make copies of all the documents. Then he gave the originals to a friend in Virginia for safekeeping, Thomas Jefferson, Hamilton's arch nemesis. Surely Hamilton's secret would not be safe with Jefferson. What's more, John Beckley decided to make his own copies of the letters without Monroe's knowledge, just in case. But like his fellow Republicans, Beckley declined to do anything with them until the time was right. Meanwhile, Alexander Hamilton fully believed that the matter was behind him. He continued in his position as Secretary of the Treasury until 1795, when he resigned and moved back to New York. But just because he no longer held office, that didn't mean he was out of politics. With the 1796 election looming, Hamilton worked as an advisor to his Federalist colleagues. It was shaping up to be a heavyweight fight between Federalist John Adams and Republican Thomas Jefferson. Although President Washington wanted Americans to rise above partisan squabbles, this request went unheeded by both sides. Hamilton didn't think much of John Adams, but it would still be better to have a Federalist in charge than a Republican. So in 1796, he wrote an anonymous essay discrediting Jefferson. In one particularly memorable passage, he wrote that Jefferson's simplicity and humility afford but a flimsy veil to the internal evidences of aristocratic splendor, sensuality, and epicureanism. Even though Hamilton had used a pen name, it was obvious that he had written the anti-Jeffersonian essay. This insult couldn't go unanswered, and the Republicans just so happened to have the perfect response. Somehow, the letters from the Hamilton-Reynolds affair found their way into the hands of James Thompson Callender, a printer whose pamphlets were notoriously pro-Republican. In an era where it took weeks to correct any journalistic errors or respond to an outright lie, proto-muckrakers like Callender were extremely useful to ambitious politicians. Nobody knows for sure how Callender got his hands on the letters. Some speculate that James Monroe gave them to him. Others think it was former House of Representatives clerk John Beckley. Whatever the case may be, Callender had them in his possession, and he knew exactly what to do with them. In June 1797, Callender published a pamphlet called The History of the United States for 1796. It was published too late to affect the previous year's election, but it still served the purpose of putting Alexander Hamilton on the back foot. In this pamphlet, Callender printed all the letters that Monroe and Beckley had copied. He made it seem like Hamilton was part of the war veteran back pay scam, as Reynolds had alleged, and that he also engaged in an extramarital affair with Maria Reynolds. Callender wrote that in Hamilton's Bucket of Chastity, a drop more or less was not to be perceived. When he read the pamphlet, Hamilton was furious. He wasn't necessarily mad at Callender. He was angry at whoever had given him the letters. And he was positive 
It was James Monroe. Although some of Hamilton's friends told him that Beckley was the guilty party, he was suspicious of the praise calendar heaped on Monroe in the same pamphlet that exposed his letters. He believed there must have been a sort of quid pro quo between the two, positive coverage in exchange for the dirt on Hamilton. He was so certain that he went to Monroe's house in New York for a face-to-face confrontation. Despite Monroe's vehement denials that he gave Calendar the letters, Hamilton didn't believe him. Monroe wouldn't tolerate such disrespect in his own house. He rose to his feet in anger and declared, Do you say I represented falsely? You are a scoundrel. Hamilton stood his ground. He responded, I will meet you like a gentleman. And with that, the gauntlet was thrown. Monroe growled, I am ready. Get your pistols. But before they dusted off the dueling pistols, a few associates broke up the fight. They agreed to let tempers cool until Monroe could meet up with Muhlenberg and Venable in Philadelphia and prepare a statement regarding the pamphlet. However, before the three of them could meet, James Callender released a second pamphlet, and the revelations within it were staggering. Callender's latest work contained a copy of a memo that Monroe, Muhlenberg, and Venable had drawn up after their visit to Hamilton back in 1792. During the visit, they told Hamilton that they were satisfied that he was innocent of financial impropriety. According to this memo, that was a bald-faced lie. The three congressmen didn't believe a word Hamilton said. Their notes stated... We left Hamilton under the impression our suspicions were removed. Furthermore, the pamphlet contained an interview Monroe conducted with one of James Reynolds' criminal associates, Jacob Klingman. Klingman claimed Hamilton made up the story about his affair with Maria to cover up for his part in their scam. This interview took place after Monroe and the others had assured Hamilton they believed he was innocent. Clearly, that hadn't been the case. Hamilton was incensed. He couldn't believe he had trusted a cad like James Monroe. It was time to take action. In a flurry of increasingly heated letters, Hamilton and Monroe both pressured the other to formally call for a duel. With neither man backing down, pistols at dawn seemed inevitable. That is, until an unlikely peacemaker came along. Aaron Burr. Burr's intervention is especially surprising considering he eventually murdered Hamilton in a duel years later. Even in 1797, the two men had been butting heads for years. Burr defeated Hamilton's father-in-law in in a 1791 U.S. Senate race, and they hadn't seen eye-to-eye since. In the build-up to the potential duel between Hamilton and James Monroe, Burr was recruited as Monroe's second, meaning he was in charge of making sure the duel was carried out in honorable circumstances. Seconds were also responsible for trying to resolve the matter peacefully. And Burr proved up to the task. The conflict fizzled out without any violence. With the duel canceled, Hamilton needed another way to defend his reputation. If the charges of financial impropriety weren't addressed, it wouldn't just damage his career, it could hamper the entire Federalist cause. 
But simply denying the financial issues wouldn't be enough. If he was going to clear his name, he had to lay everything on the table. He had to tell the truth about his affair. Coming up, Hamilton puts the phrase, the pen is mightier than the sword, to the test. And now, back to the story. With rumors of financial corruption in the air, Alexander Hamilton couldn't let the allegations go unanswered. He decided he had to come completely clean about his affair with Maria Reynolds. So, roughly a month after James Callender aired the scandal in July 1797, Hamilton published a document of his own, which became known as the Reynolds Pamphlet. Hamilton addressed the allegations head-on, writing, The charge against me is a connection with one James Reynolds for purposes of improper pecuniary speculation. My real crime is an amorous connection with his wife for a considerable time with his privity and connivance, if not originally brought on by a combination between the husband and wife with the design to extort money from me. To make sure his opponents couldn't call him out for dishonesty, Hamilton included every single detail from the affair. He vividly described his initial visit with Maria Reynolds, He wrote about how he carried on his tryst at his family's home. He even mentioned that he encouraged his wife and children to stay up in Albany so he wouldn't need to make excuses to sneak out and see Maria. Hamilton laid out the convoluted financial dealings that followed the affair with just as much detail. But the affair was so salacious that the finances were essentially ignored. All anyone wanted to talk about was the sex. Hamilton's enemies were all too happy to offer their reactions. The journalist who started the scandal, James Callender, wrote that the Reynolds pamphlet was worth all that 50 of the best pens in America could have said against Hamilton. Callender was right. Nobody really cared about the financial issues one way or another. They were angrier that Hamilton had betrayed his loving wife. One particularly livid reviewer denounced Hamilton for using his home as the rendezvous of his whoredom, taking advantage of the absence of his wife and children to introduce a prostitute to those sacred abodes of conjugal and filial retirement to gratify his wicked purposes. A Republican newspaper called the Aurora took the attacks one step further, asserting that Eliza Hamilton was evil because she had such a wicked husband. It was a despicable assertion that, unfortunately, is still common today. For her part, Eliza Hamilton rose above the petty attacks. We don't know what life was like in the Hamilton household, but by all accounts, she ultimately forgave him. For the next 50 years, she tirelessly worked to undo the damage that had been done to her husband's reputation. It was more than his allies could say. Even Hamilton's staunchest supporters found it difficult to come to his defense. Noah Webster of the eponymous dictionary wrote, What shall we say of a man who has borne some of the highest civil and military employment, who could deliberately publish a history of his private intrigues, degrade himself in the estimation of all good men, and scandalize a family 
to clear himself of charges which no man believed. Webster's incredulity is understandable. Hamilton's admission was akin to JFK writing a tell-all on his suspected affair with Marilyn Monroe in order to avoid criticism for the Cuban Missile Crisis. But despite Hamilton's apparent honesty, not everyone bought his story. Particularly, James Callender took issue with the details of Hamilton's denial. He remained convinced that Hamilton had forged the letters from Maria to cover up his illegal scam with her husband. Callender suggested having Maria Reynolds provide a handwriting sample for comparison. However, nobody took Callender up on the challenge. Even his Republican friends didn't care to investigate the matter any further. Hamilton's career was already ruined. There was no point in beating a dead horse. And yet, maybe they should have taken Callender more seriously. According to historian Julian Parks Boyd, Hamilton's conduct as Treasury Secretary was less than exemplary. He rarely investigated any misconduct within his department and used his position to give opportunities to his friends and allies. Additionally, Boyd pointed out that Muhlenberg, Venable, and Monroe gave Hamilton three days' notice before coming to see him on December 15, 1792. He could have used that window to write the 20 letters he claimed were from Maria Reynolds. Upon further examination, the Maria Reynolds letters were inconsistently written. Long, multisyllabic words were written with ease, while Maria, apparently, couldn't spell simple words like few, both, and such. In Boyd's opinion, these incongruities were evidence that Hamilton wrote the letters that he thought would seem like a swooning woman's breathless missives. However, there's no conclusive proof that the letters weren't genuine or that Hamilton was involved in James Reynolds' financial scheme. Whether or not the accusations regarding his financial dealings were true, the Reynolds pamphlet effectively destroyed Hamilton's chances of ever holding an elected office. His reputation could never withstand a public election. However, behind the scenes, he was still an influential advisor among the Federalists. After the contentious presidential election of 1800, Hamilton swayed the results by backing his Republican rival, Thomas Jefferson, over personal nemesis, Aaron Burr. Burr didn't take kindly to Hamilton's decision, and the animosity didn't end there. When Burr ran for governor of New York four years later, Hamilton once again tore him down, describing him as the most unfit and dangerous man in the community. This was the last straw for Burr. After he lost the election, he challenged Hamilton to a duel, and this time, their seconds were unable to stop it. The fateful confrontation took place on the morning of July 11, 1804. Hamilton shot first, but his bullet missed its target. Some historians believe that Hamilton missed on purpose. They think he only agreed to the duel to symbolically defend his honor and never intended to hurt his opponent. But Aaron Burr had no such compunctions. His shot hit its target. Hamilton was rushed to the hospital, but he was beyond help. He died the next day on July 12, 1804. 
Although the Reynolds-Hamilton affair was the first sex scandal that wrecked American politics, it was hardly the last. Just as George Washington's refusal to serve more than two presidential terms established a long-lasting precedent, this scandal established the idea that public officials should be held accountable for their private behaviors. Once Alexander Hamilton came clean about his relationship with Maria Reynolds, his previous bona fides went out the window. It didn't matter that he helped lead the Continental Army to victory in the crucial Battle of Yorktown. It didn't matter that he helped shape the Constitution. It didn't matter that his economic policies helped a newborn country stand on its feet. All that mattered was that he cheated on his wife. Of course, this isn't to say that Hamilton wasn't in the wrong. But one act of bad judgment in his personal life overshadowed all the positive things he had done for his country. Perhaps if he had lived longer, the passage of time would have restored Hamilton's reputation. Unfortunately, we'll never know what could have been. Next week, we'll be back to look at scandal number 51, the Black Friday scandal. Seventy years after the Hamilton-Reynolds affair, another financial scam rocked the United States, and this time, it involved the president himself. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream political scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type political scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Alex Benedon, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Richard Rossner and Kate Leonard. <laughs>